Let me set the scene for you. It's 1944, World War II is starting to turn for the Allies, and among other concerns, a giant tire manufacturer wants to hit the ground running once the war is over. They build a new tire they want to test to make sure it's as durable as they believe it to be. And the site they choose for this test? Well, it's the world-famous Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They enlist the help of one of their executives, who also just so happens to be a three-time Indy 500 winner. However, when they arrive in Indy for the test, they find the famous brickyard is in terrible condition. It's been shut down, left to rot, ever since the war began. The gates that were padlocked even fall down when they try to open them up. It was a sight that was almost too much to bear for the former race car driver turned executive. He was frustrated to see this palace of speed turn into a garden of weeds. Worse yet, there were plans to turn the track into a massive housing development. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Obviously, the track is still thriving today, as beautiful as ever. So why wasn't it torn down after World War II? Today on Stagger, we'll explore the legend of Wilbur Shaw and tell you how he saved the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Turns of loose coming into the front straight. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. But, oh, he can't do that. But we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before. Welcome to Stagger, where we explore motorsports legends, heroes, and myths. I'm J.D. Smith. He's Derek Smith. Derek, you said you had a question for me before we get going today. So you have one in America, not the world, because in the world there might be a few different options. But in America, you have one race to go to and one race only in a year. And which race would that be that you choose? Indy 500. Indy 500. I would take down. the Indy 500. I've been t I went to the 100th Indy 500. It's a huge deal. You can't fathom how big of a deal it is to the people who attend it until you go it is beyond a racing event it is like a spiritual experience when you go to the indianapolis motor speedway mm. spiritual experience and then occasionally you see someone vomit like <laughs> there's both things going at the same time but i i love that place i love that racetrack and so obviously i'm a big fan of wilbur shaw yeah yeah and i do know the name of wilbur shaw because i i remember seeing him his car in the museum when i when i went there before a few years ago and he, those cars from that that era just are gnarly man they've got you know the, the riding mechanic but they're just like you said boxy and then as you as you get into the 40s and 50s you get that sleek bullet kind of looking yeah front engine so he started driving in more of the like i don't know it looked like a shipping container era <laughs> that where it's just like a box with wheels on it and then by the end of the time he drives he's driving a maserati that has smooth slim lines and is there's no riding mechanic anymore and it's just him and like you can see this car it's still at the museum yeah. in indy and it's i mean it actually looks a little bit more like the cockpit you will see for the next like 50 or 60 years in indy right. until they go to paddle shifters where he has a little shifting mechanism i think they only had low and high gear back then i don't think they had like a transmission yeah like we have today like, like four or five gears yeah yeah but he would just shift from low to high and then that was kind of it but yeah, that was that was it's it looks closer to it. I mean, he talks about in his book those older ones when he first started driving, he was a smaller man. He wasn't I think it was maybe 55 or so, but he talked about how when a wreck was coming, they could see the wreck happening and he knew he couldn't stop and so he would 
go down in the basement of the car, which was like he would just slip his whole body into the the bottom because that's then, safe. Well, and but the, but he wouldn't fly out of the car. He would just kind of be in that little cavern, and then he'd get out and be banged up. But he wasn't as bad off as other people. Wasn't dead, yeah, yeah. So, Jeez. and there's a lot of death if you read the uh, gentlemen start your engines book. I mean, it's literally like in this race it was tragic because so and so died. He was a dear friend. We all were at his funeral. It was sad. The next day, and it just, I mean, it's so its so different now yeah. than where you think they would spend three chapters on a book about someone dying in a race, but it was just a different time back then. That is the man that we're going to talk about, but we're not just going to talk about Wilbur Shaw. There's also a couple other names you need to know in this story. Uh, Tony Holman, mm-hmm. actually Antonio Holman Jr. That An- is... Antonio. Yeah. Or Real- I think it's Anton? Antonio. Anton? I think it's Anton. he's antonio from now on (laughs) i am not calling him anything else but antonio holman you know what i think how do i not know this i did all this research and i actually i mean okay (laughs) yes you know what it is though okay it's anton it's tony and his other nickname big tone big tone big tone that's what we're calling him Ooh, big tone tone. big tone yes anton holman jr uh, Tony, that is the guy who is a lot of there. There's actually a book about him uh, that is called The Man Who Saved the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I would say that book is uh, incomplete. I'm incomplete. not saying it's, I'm not saying it's wrong. I, I actually haven't read that book. I don't know. Maybe it's great. But the title is misleading because, like I said, I think Wilbur Shaw is even more responsible for saving this speedway than Tony Holman. But we'll get to that. The other person you need to know in this story is Eddie Rickenbacker. I think he was a pilot he was. in the military. And that what, would make what sense. World, they, what world war was he a pilot in? There's only two, so you got a 50-50 shot. Mighty one. Yes! That hey. would, yay! Well, okay, so it's, that's a good guess, because, and you'll understand why it's a good guess. Eddie Rickenbacker owned the Speedway during World War II. And what? Pre-World War II. Yeah, Eddie Rickenbacker owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I knew yes, he, I knew for he many raced, years. I knew he raced there, I think. Uh, he, yeah, I think with all the, like the, 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 the names of the, like, cause it wasn't there a Gaston Chevrolet. Oh and, yeah. And, there and were like a, a lot of like, an, guys, like yes. some guy named Oldsmobile too. <laughs> yes. There were a lot. Of, <laughs> but, well, Olds, Olds, it was yeah, the Olds yeah. family cause they had the Olds. Man, mobile, wouldn't right. you like to be driving like a 95 Rickenbacker? He missed his, he missed his calling, man. The name <laughs> like that is a good name. Rickenbacker is a good name. Well, Eddie Rickenbacker, uh, after being a world war one fighter pilot ace, you know, again, yeah. Planes were just becoming a thing at that time. So he was one of the very first to really fly it in a war. He gained a lot of fame after that. He Mm -hmm. actually ended up also running Eastern Airlines and had many business interests, including the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So those are the three kind of characters to keep in mind here. Now, let's go back to Wilbur Shaw. Uh, So he raced, like I said, early 20s on through the 30s. um, And his, his final race was actually in 1941 which we will talk about in a second. But Wilbur Shaw won the Indy 500 in 1937, 1939, and 1940. So in four years, he won it three times. He finished uh, second in two other years around that. Um, He also, in 1936, I think, finished like seventh. So in a six-year period, his worst finish was seventh. And he won it three times to finish second twice. So he he had like a dominant stretch from 1935 to 1940 in the Indy 500. He was like, he went from being a w- well-known racing driver hmm. 
in the early 30s, in the Depression era 30s, to by 1940, he was like the most famous driver mm. on the planet or one of two or three at, at worst. He was Whoa. a very well-known and well-accomplished driver. So this is the part of the podcast that if you're Michael Andretti, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the Andretti <laughs> family may just in general. There's Mario, a lot Mario might not mind it, but. Yeah. Well, that's fine. But I mean, you win three of them. That's that's a pretty big deal. It's not just that, though. Like he went. This is a guy who literally went to the speedway, saw it and thought, I got to do that started working everywhere he could to learn how to build race cars. He eventually traveled all around the region, the Midwest region with dirt cars and with indie cars. They were called big cars at the time. Um, and he learned how to build race cars. And so wow. he actually built the race car from scratch that he wanted in 19 designed it had help obviously building it, but designed this thing and it was more aerodynamic than a lot of its other components because he looked at it and said i think if i can put a little cowling over like the suspension components that will help the air go over them a little better like an not upset yeah i mean he he had some he just had some great understanding he this guy did everything from high speed runs at bonneville and daytona beach before that then they eventually went out to the salt flats so he kind of did yeah. both those he also ran like high speed boats in Florida. Like so, so that's kind of like the equivalent of sim racing for like the William Byrons of today's age. Like most of these young guys are out there sim racing on a Thursday night. He's like, oh, let's go build a car and see if we can run in the salt flats. Oh, he was well, <laughs> and, and I mean, he was he was getting hired to do this. Like he was such a wow. renowned driver that they were hiring him. He ran out in California at a legendary track called Ascot. By 1940, he is. Well accomplished. He has now won it three times. He's a big deal. Uh, 1941, that was his final Indy 500. And this one's very important because this actually is the race that led him to not be a race car driver anymore. He led over 100 laps in 1941, but in that Maserati that had already won it twice, he was leading again, could have won it three in a row, would have been the first ever to do that, and would have been the first ever to win it four times. But he had a wheel failure where the the metal spindle part of the wheel broke and shot his car up into the wall. He hit very hard and injured his back. Mm. Uh, he never raced in the Indy 500 again after that. Mm. Um, the weird thing about this, so the 1941 Indy 500, do you know about the garage fire that occurred that year? No. Yes, there it was a massive fire the morning of the race at in the garage. Arson? They're not sure. They think it was somebody who just left some old rags around and then there was some Smoking, fuel and then a spark ignited. And yeah. So whole garage went up in flames. Fortunately, only one car was lost. All the other cars were managed. Like some were damaged. They, they rolled a lot of them out before the fire got too bad, but it took up the whole garage and eventually big part of it went up in flames. So they had to delay the start of the race that year. But when they did that, they were moving all the stuff out as much as they could salvage out of the fire's path. And they got the wheels for his car mixed up. He had gone through the wheels and meticulously like paired these wheels up together. Cause obviously back then they didn't have like quality control on these things like they do now. So he would test these wheels. He balanced them. He did all these things, but he hadn't marked them all yet. And he had them stacked up just the way he wanted. So he could mark them the morning of the race. And it turned out, they got mixed up and so he didn't quite know what wheels he was putting on but he determined later 
one of the bad wheels that he was actually probably not even going to use ended up getting put on his car and that's the one that he thinks failed Mm. so that garage fire led to him having an accident that accident led to him not racing the indy 500 anymore or racing in general Mm. he actually after that happened not long after that he took a position with firestone and was actually working in their well as it turned out he ended up working in their aircraft division for wheels and tires and things like that because 1941 if you're familiar Mm. december of that year date which will live in infamy december 7th that was the bombing of pearl harbor and we're in world war ii so 1941 was the last indy 500 before world war ii Mm. so the Speedway was not running during that time. All the races were shut down all across the country. There was no auto racing going on because you needed all the rubber and the metal and everything to be going towards the war effort. So he was not at a place where he could, he wasn't in the military. He was too old. So he worked for Firestone and became this kind of executive in aviation and in, in helping with these tires. That was mainly what he was focused on. In 1944, he is asked to come to the Speedway for a tire test by Firestone. And what they wanted to do was actually do a tire test and shoot a film about their tires. Because by 1944, in November 1944, the war was starting to go pretty good for the U.S. They figured it would be over sometime in the next year or so. So all these companies started ramping up production. They wanted to go back Mm. to... All right, let's let's make these new tires. Let's let's focus on consumer stuff again, building tires for cars and making the best tire we can. So they said, go out there, run the car. We want to test this car. We want you to run 500 miles. He literally ran an Indy 500 by himself. There was no one else really there. It was just him. They filmed some of it. They had an actor come in and interview him after it to pretend like it was a real thing. Anyway. Hmm. He got done with that test and he said it was so bad. The track had cracks all over it. He said there was just, they had to clear, they literally had to pull tree branches off of the track. It had been padlocked ever since the night, basically after 1941. It was padlocked. Nobody touched it all through the World War II. Jeez. In his book, he said that it haunted him. He said, quote, it haunted my dreams for many nights because of it. So he, he could not stand to see how bad the track condition was. He was depressed by this. He later said in his book, he felt that everything he had become in life, he more or less owed to his success at the Speedway. Mm. So, I mean, and he thinks he wouldn't have got the Firestone job without winning the Indy 500. Yeah. He wouldn't have got all these other opportunities to run speedboats and do speed runs at these. All that came because people saw him run the Indy 500 like a dozen or more times. I have something interesting to add to this aspect, too, of of him being working for Firestone. So did you know that back in World War Two? because of the production of the rubber trees that where you get rubber from, that was all controlled by the Axis power of Japan. Mm. So uh, a friend of mine is a real estate developer in a, in a factory that he bought and he's repurposing now as we speak, was a recycling plant for tires in World War II. And what they would do is they would recycle them, press them together and make a new tire out of existing rubber. Yeah. Because that that's, what they, right. that's what they had to do. So in 1944, it would make sense that Firestone's like, hey, you know how you're always getting flats on the road? Well, now that we have the supply back of road, we're making good brand new yes, tires. This was it. So, that's, that's where we sit in 1944. He goes to this racetrack. He is distraught about it. So he goes to see Eddie Rickenbacker, who he calls Rick, because that's, you know, again, like one of the biggest names in motorsports, one of these legendary American heroes. 
you have to remember with Wilbur Shaw, and I didn't bring this up earlier, but it's, I guess, good to point out now. He learned how to fly at the same time Jimmy Stewart was learning how to fly in in Los Angeles. Like, they were flying out of the same hangar. Like, <laughs> so he was friends with Hollywood people. He was friends with this giant titan of industry and Eddie Rickenbacker. He, so he knew all these big names and all these people. Mm-hmm. So when he saw the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was in disrepair, it's not like you or me seeing it and going like, well, that sucks. They ought to do something about that. Yeah. He calls up the guy who owns the track and is like, what the hell, man? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, one thing I find interesting is because he said that he he felt it was his personal mission to save the Speedway. Like, it, no one else, he felt like, if no, if I don't do this, no one else may do it. Just imagine if he had been like a dick who, yep. who was just a race car driver who was like, well, that sucks. That Speedway's crap anyway. Blah. And they just like moved on and was like, well, screw them. Like, there probably wouldn't have been anybody to save this because Eddie Rickenbacker at the end of the war was going to do what a lot of other racetrack owners were doing at that time. They were selling the Speedway and turning it into housing developments. And if you look all around Speedway, Indiana, there are 1950s houses everywhere. That is the era (laughs) of when they built all around that place, but they didn't build there. Yep. And he was that was the next one that was going to get sold was that big plot of land. So... He calls up Eddie Rickenbacker, does Wilbur Shaw. What will it take to save this place? And he goes, look, man, I'm done putting money into it. It's not that I don't like racing. I do. I'm just too busy with the airlines that I also run. Yeah. I don't want to manage this. And I don't want to bring it back. I'm. If you can get me what I put into it, I will sell it to someone. Hmm. They worked out a number. And then Wilbur Shaw went to work. He started calling people left and right. They compiled a list of all these people he knew in the auto industry. And that means not just the you know car manufacturers but people who made oil and tires and everything a young He's, rental truck entrepreneur <laughs> not, <laughs> maybe not right not, not, not quite that not, not quite roger that. penske yet he hadn't quite got there yet <laughs> but he started calling everyone he knew and yeah. and there were a lot of people who were interested who had the money to buy it mm-hmm. that's the interesting thing was it wasn't so much difficult to find people who had money who said yeah i'd love to save that from we love the indianapolis motor speedway a lot of these car companies said Oh, yeah, we'll do it. We just want to call it like, you know, whatever car company Speedway. And we want to use it for a personal testing grounds. And our races will only feature these cars. Boo. Oh, boo. Big time. Boo. Or we're in we're an oil company. And sure, you can do that. But we want every the oil has to be our oil that's running these cars. And so you have to remember the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the history at the time was if you could build something better and newer and different. Everyone took notice, everyone learned from it, mm-hmm. and the automotive industry got better. That was what he wanted to preserve. He wanted it to be the truest, biggest, best competition in the world. Something that would continue to get it world-renowned. So he didn't want it to become just like a corporate place. He wanted it to be a special, hallowed place where the fastest, most brave people could bring the fastest, most daring thing they could build and see who would win. That was a condition of all these people. He eliminated and said, nope, not going to do it. So he got pretty frustrated. He and his wife, who uh, inst- int- this guy's an interesting guy. His wife, most of the time in this story, she is referred to as Boots in his book because <laughs> she reminded him of some like radio character. I guess she had a similar voice. So th- the whole time maybe you're reading the, this. Maybe there's something else going on there with those <laughs> nicknames. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> there's just a lot of like, yeah, Boots and I were talking. I went to this. No, Boots and I were there. Like, so he and Boots, Boots. his wife, they start going through and just crossing off names left and right and going back through things they'd had. They wrote down conversations they had with all these people. 
And he eventually came to a note where he said, hey, someone mentioned this guy, Big Tone. Uh, <laughs> Let me guess. He's probably like 4'11", right? Yeah, I don't know. So no, like, no, t- like, no. Like, like, like Tiny Lund? No, Tony yeah. Holman, I think, is a pretty decently tall guy. Anyway, yeah. said there's this Tony Holman businessman up in Terre Haute, Indiana, and they keep telling me I need to talk to him. But I don't know this guy, so let's call him. What they have, that company, a business called Holman and Company. Tony Holman had become the president of that business at age 30. This was in 1931. So he was born in 1901. Easy math. But Tony Holman Jr. took over the company from his dad. His dad specifically told everyone that worked there, hey, when he gets out of college, don't give him an easy job. Give him a tough job. So they made him a salesman. He had to go out on the road and sell things. And then he eventually became the top salesman. So then he ascended the corporate ladder that way. He actually supposedly had to work for it. Yeah. So whatever that's worth. Yeah. But this company was a wholesale supplier of groceries, tobacco, liquor, and Clabber Girl baking powder. If you've ever seen Clabber Girl, which I know mm-hmm. we have some in the house, um, they owned that. The Holman family owned that up until just like five or six years ago. They sold that off. Kind of like the Speedway. Yeah. They, uh, they made $80 million when they sold the baking powder industry. <laughs> and that's just one of the many things they've sold over the years. Jeez. So the money they've got is insane. So just know, he had a lot of money mm-hmm. back in the 30s and early 40s. And he was running the company. He knew what they could do. But he didn't really have like a huge relationship with anyone in Indianapolis as far as with like the racing community. Mm-hmm. So Wilbur Shaw thinks he's got to go convince this businessman with a lot of money, like, hey, we, we have this thing called the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You ever heard of it? Gets there, and it turns out he's got a brilliant in with Tony Holman. Because Tony Holman goes, oh, yeah, I was there in 1914. I, I watched that race, and I've been going ever since. He just went as a patron as every a year, paid his admission. <laughs> no one really knew this. So turns out they've got a massive fan of the Speedway who's got all this money, and they're like both outdoorsy guys. Both these guys like to hunt and fish. So they talked about that. They hit it off famously. They're also about the same age. Tony Holman at this time was 44 years old. Wilbur Shaw, 43 years old. Um, for comparative purposes, I would like to point out to you that right now, as we record this, Jimmy Johnson is 45 years old. Scott Dixon is 40 years old. And Tom Brady is 43 years old. Like, just think about these are the ages we're talking about. These people who like we have to save the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In my head, everyone was like 70 when this happened. I mean, this is is this kind of like Dale Jr. saving North Wilkesboro like his like his campaign is? Sure. I would think it's like that except North Wilkesboro would have to be known in Japan. Oh, well, yeah, well, yeah. And and Germany we're, and we're, everywhere we're ta- else. We're ta- we're talking about maybe regionally in the state of North yeah, Carolina. Yeah, like for it's sure. A, it's a big deal for North Carolina to have of that back. Of course it is, yeah. It, yeah, and they, at, this, at this time, they just voted the governor to give millions of dollars to rehab that. So Rocky, I mean, just, Rockingham's better, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, Focus on Rockingham. I like that track better. Hey, anyway, and, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, and they actually have had races in the last I can't wait, decade. by the way, just a quick aside on that. I can't wait for all the NASCAR fans to bitch and moan about how the racing at North Wilkesboro sucks. Whenever they bring, they'll bring it back 20 years from now, they'll get it going, and in two races, they'll be like, man, oh, this place sucks. sucks. Dude, it can't pass. Uh, it's like, we didn't back, have it. For- let's go back to the road course of Charlotte. Uh, anyway, that's another story <laughs> for another day. Uh, so back to this time. So purchase price for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was $750,000 in 1945. Dude. We could get like 15 people together and mortgage that. 
here's the problem <laughs> that in today's dollars is a little more difficult to do that's 10 million dollars today now that's still not anywhere close to what roger penske paid for it when roger penske bought the speedway in night in 2019 do you know what he paid for it 300 million bingo Really? Between, between 250 and 300 million. Really? So it it appreciated quite a bit in the years of Holman ownership. Holman now, and George. Now, all you ownership. all talking about taking Dogecoin to the moon. The Holman family took that speedway to the dang moon. <laughs> they sure and did. And Roger Penske met him there with the check. They sure did. <laughs> so they closed this deal in November of 1945. Um, and oh, by the way, like they got financing for all this because this is just a good life lesson for everybody. Like even Tony Holman and all the money he had was like, well, I'm not using my own money. We're going to use other people's money. Yes. And then we'll pay that back with the funds. And then that's how this works. That's yes. how rich people do things. So just life lesson there. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they're doing it. So yeah. they got it settled as to the Speedway changing hands. Eddie Rickenbacker agreed to sell it. Tony Holman took over and immediately made Wilbur Shaw the president of the Speedway. Wilbur Shaw's like, thank you very much for saving the Speedway. Shit. <laughs> like now, now i have to say now this it's my thing. job yes now i have to turn this thing into a race so november 1945 they want to have a race in 1946 in may they said we have to have a race in fact to get the funds going to yeah. make this make sense because otherwise we can't let it sit for another year yeah so they had to build they had to fix things this is how bad the speedway was they had to build new grandstands, not completely, but there were two or three of the grandstand sections that were just completely dilapidated, had to be torn down and replaced. They had to build new grandstands because they thought they could sell some more tickets. They had to rebuild the pagoda. They had to fix giant cracks all over the racetrack and clearing the brush and debris from the entire property. Picture, I mean, you've been there. Oh, we all both the, have all been there. All the grass, there. all the glamping that they have now. Imagine being like this. You know those bushes? Or the, the, those weeds that they end up turning like branches. I don't even know what the plant they are, but it's like they like spider out. They have the like shape. Yes, these, right. Like, yeah. yeah, and it's like it is it is darn near impossible to take them out without using a dang chainsaw. And I, and that's like if you let one patch of grass overgrow on the edge of your property, they're there in like by fall. You're like, how did this get here? I was mowing oh, yeah, this in April. Yeah. Imagine leaving your lawn. Just leave your leave your yard go for an entire summer and then have to get that back. Oh gosh. Now picture that for four years and it's a place that's bigger than like Vatican City. <laughs> that's what you're trying to rehab. Bigger than a country. Oh, and they don't they don't have like a bunch of you know. It's not like they had a bunch of John Deere like you no. know rototillers and all this like they're doing a lot of this by hand or with some heavy equipment but certainly not not the same type of things we have now they have all of that going on plus there's this problem we just got through the war there's still limitations in the u.s on buying steel because a lot of the steel was still being used for the war effort, for the yeah. war effort and and it was over but they were still filling out the military and then of course a lot of people are coming back and like hey we want to build houses we want to you know do all this other stuff so there were limits on how much steel they could get and that caused them to say we don't think we can build these grandstands until they worked with a contractor who actually had the brilliant idea he said well what kind of steel can we get let's build grandstands that work with that steel we can't build the design you want but let's just build a different design with different, cheaper, maybe less sturdy steel, but we'll use more of that steel to sturdy it up. 
And so that's what they did. Um, so just a lot of little things like that. Hey, where they that, had to, Was that the existing Ransom until recently when they redid the Speedway? I don't think so. I, I'm sure they, because what I do know is this, the, the Holman family and Tony Holman, just junior especially, um, right after they purchased it, they just, for the next few years, they dumped money into that track like crazy and upgraded it and made it really nice. Put, so, the, put the F1 garages in there, the road course. Yeah. All that. <laughs> yeah. Eventually they, that all got there. That was not at that time. But... Here's the thing. The reason that all those in investments happened so quickly was because they set up an office, they started going to work selling tickets, and it turned out they had double the demand for tickets than capacity. So they were not only trying to rebuild grandstands, they were trying to add a few in because they thought, we don't want to miss out on this opportunity. Right. And that's so, probably how the snake pit came about too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, they had to bring it, all that in. I'm joking, but in, in a way too, like that's always been like there's an evolution of the indianapolis 500 fan a lot of people discovered in their 20s when they're going there like hey you want to hear a rock band and like you know watch racing get drunk sure and then you get in their 30s and they're like hey i i miss going to the snake pit or i i miss going i want to go to the track it's 30s i got a kid now let's go to the track and then it's like now you're the aged grandparent who's got the three generations come to the track like that's the evolution of an indy 500 fan right yeah. These are fans that may not be racing fans of any other series, any other race, even the IndyCar series itself. They're like, oh, yeah, well, it's great they won Mid-Ohio and maybe he won the championship. But what did he do at Indy last year? You know, and there's people that are Indy 500 fans specifically and they don't really pay attention to anything else. And that's a that's a rarity. There's maybe there's fans like that with Daytona because the, the racing's so different. And, you know, it's, I don't know, Florida people can be weird sometimes. No offense if you're listening to Florida, but I mean, come on, look around. You, you get it. I, I, I wonder, though, I mean, maybe Monaco might be a thing. You, you know, maybe there's only people that only watch Monaco because they, you know, they're rich and famous and they live there. But other than that, I mean, if you like racing, if you talk to a NASCAR fan and says, hey, here's free tickets to a sprint car race, they're going to go. If you talk to an IndyCar fan and says, hey, I'm, I've got tickets to Sonoma NASCAR, you want to go? And you're in, the, in San Francisco on a business trip, you're going to go to Sonoma. Yeah. You know, like you're going to go see a race if there's a race nearby and it works in your schedule. And I'm, I'm sure the Indy 500 fans would be like that, too. But that it's just really cool how that has become a thing where it's like the Speedway has become part of that culture in Indianapolis. And, you know, I, as we're going to find out here in a little bit, that that has been ingrained in so many generations that it's taken a foothold in that city, in that community. Yeah, it, it really is. And Wilbur Shaw is is the man who kind of pushed everyone to get this done and to get to that point because he he even said like if we don't do this for the indianapolis motor speedway it might be the death knell for auto racing you got to remember like yeah. this time period everyone has just gotten done with a world war a lot of a lot of good young yeah. kids went no, off there and, is no nascar oh there was no nascar at this time no. formula one has not occurred they haven't had the first i think the first formula one grand prix is in the 50s so that hasn't even happened i mean there's obviously auto racing but it's not as organized. There were guys who did road racing in Europe and oval track racing here. There's just a lot of that going on that is very difficult to really know what would have happened if they had stopped. If they had stopped the Indy 500 and if they had torn down that racetrack, who knows if someone builds anything like that? Who knows if Bill France is like, you know what I'm going to do? Build a Day Daytona Speedway. We're going to do something. like Everything you read about, if you read old NASCAR history, is... Yeah, we want to do what Indianapolis is doing, but down here, yeah. you know, everything like everybody's in all these thing. places were like, we need to build something like that. But for us down in the south, well, what if they were like, well, the Indy 500 has gone. 
That just doesn't happen anymore. Maybe none of those people build those things. We don't know. It's hard to say, but... Such a butterfly effect to this thing, if you think about it. You may have had Wilbur Shaw just be Wilbur Shaw, the race car driver. Yeah. If his wheel doesn't fall off because of a tire fire where they put the wrong... Or a fire in the garage that ended up... They put the wrong tires on his car. Who knows? He might have done other things after that and and just decided i'll i'll race but i'm not going to get involved in trying to save the speedway we'll go somewhere else and make a new yeah, indy or something california do it out yeah. in los angeles or something like never you know, know. You know um, it, it would be it'd be wild and maybe like you know you look at west coast west coast has the uh the the super trucks right uh you know the, the baja trucks kind of thing that's a scene that's big out there you go to kansas no one knows anything about baja trucks you know what i mean yeah. so like it, indycar or that kind of race could have just big, been a regional speedway thing. racing could be a regional west coast thing yeah it could have been and there yeah. were, i mean there were there were dirt tracks at the time too that they would take these cars to because remember they would take these cars to a dirt track and then to a pavement track and then you know all this other stuff but yeah it was still something that was regional indy was the thing that everyone in the country paid attention to and eventually you know the world one of the general managers of the track that was kind of on site every day, Wilbur Shaw talks about in his book, Pop Myers is his name. He was a legendary. He was like the vice president of the Speedway, even back when Eddie Rickenbacker owned it. He stayed on and was part of it during the transition and worked right under Wilbur Shaw. Every day he would, you know, Wilbur Shaw would come to the track. Pop Myers would be there and say, there's no way we're going to get this done. And Wilbur Shaw was just like, okay, thanks for your input gonna keep going anyway <laughs> and so eventually it got to the point where he told him like i don't care if that's your honest opinion just shut up about it because we have got it <laughs> i can't you saying that is not going to help us get it done right so they eventually did they said they were pouring some of the they had not pouring it but they had the cement casing like the wood forms around the cement for some of the final grandstands was like they hadn't even taken the wood forms off of the concrete when they opened the gates the day of the 1946 Indy 500. So it was right up to the last minute they were working. And part of the problem was they had a bunch of laborers who, who can blame these guys. I would have been doing the same thing. They're in the month of May. They're working on trying to build the speedway and they're finishing touches, but there are cars on the track because it's the month of May and there's that qualifying procedure. <laughs> so they said every time that a car would get on the track and go even close to speed, Everybody around the speedway would take their tools, set them down, and watch the guy run his four laps. <laughs> so he said it's the most expensive way anyone's ever built a speedway was because half the time these guys were just sitting there watching the race. But 1946, Indy 500 runs. It is the 30th Indy 500, if you can believe that. Hmm. Um, that race had a lot of firsts. It was the first race that back home again in Indiana was sung before the race. Really? So Wilbur Shaw even brought that back. Think well, he, not back. He found Jim he Neighbors. Brought it. Well, Jim Neighbors wasn't. No, he found him. He, he <laughs> no, found there were other him. people. Singing he was it. one of the workers on Turn Four, right? Other people that, were singing it. No, but no, no, don't ruin the thing for me. Jim Neighbors has always sung it. They should just play a recording of him singing it every year. Jim no, Neighbors doesn't sing it now. I know he's passed. I know. I get it. Right. But he, I'm saying that just hit the play. But back home again. We, we can, you know, we all know what it no, is. No, please right? don't sing. In Indiana. No. Um, <laughs> it was also the first race that featured Tom Carnegie, a.k.a. the voice of the Speedway. If you ever heard them play a sound, because they've done this recently, he's long since passed, sadly. Mm. But this is the guy who, when they would have a qualifying run on the track, you'd hear, he's on it. That was Tom Carnegie. 
Voice of the Speedway. The first one to say he's on it, that was him. He came up with that phrase for when someone was on a qualifying run. And then, of course, whenever they would do this, he would say, it's a new track record. And everyone would go crazy. A lot of firsts, like I said. The other first, well, not first, I guess, but this is also kind of important. The pace car driver that year, some guy named Henry Ford II. That would be the guy who eventually oversaw the Ford get it done, beat Ferrari, Ford versus Ferrari, that Henry Ford II. Pace Pace car driver. But at this time, he was like, you know, the son of uh, Henry Ford, obviously, but was, (laughs) I don't know why I had a blank on that. Son of Gaston Chevrolet. We got a little, (laughs) whoa, hey now. Boots, was she involved? We don't know. (laughs) Son of Elon Musk. No, different car. I can't think of the manufacturer. Someone who made cars. Anyway, uh, Henry Ford II was like, also, I love that they threw in here. He's like, this young man's got a lot of pep. He was named the young and up and coming executive uh, he's gonna be something someday like he he's like wow this is henry ford ii and there's a picture of him and he is just henry ford ii was a massive dude he looks like a giant child in this photo uh, with a bunch of other like four foot eleven drivers at the time i bet i bet that's not hard to do hang on i gotta find the photo it's in here he was a giant he was a ma- he was crazy he was six one okay so this is this is this so this is about 10 years uh, 15 years before but there's look at Henry Ford the second in that photo. Which one? Oh, that! Oh my gosh! He's that's when he's that's in 1932. Look how big he is as a kid. He's bigger than all the adults. And all right, so anyway, Henry Ford the second, big dude, big dude, big dude. So yeah, that was that was the race they got in the 1946 Indy 500 pretty historic that they got it back it was run by one by a man named George Robson uh the average speed for that race was 114 miles an hour but qualifying speed was 128 miles an hour so you know average speed of course is dictated by the pit stops and all that but makes sense I mean it makes sense and you always go faster in qualifying than you do in a race because you gotta you're on that razor thin edge on those four laps of of fury that yeah. they have on the track. It's yeah. the it's the most dangerous and gutsy and hold your breath. I mean, I think team owners have talked to that barely breathe for those four laps. I don't know how they survive, but they do. I don't know. You, know, you just you, you don't even think about breathing. You're just thinking about will my car survive? Will that driver? Sadly, you know, in a lot of instances, yeah. will my driver survive? And that in that time, sadly, that's exactly I mean, what it you, was. Could you imagine being? I mean, obviously the spouse. We think about the car owner. What if you're the mechanic? That's like I have spent days on this car in the last few days like I, I, I've done everything about this car and all of a sudden you're like will that thing hold I got to show you one other picture before we go and I know again we're on a podcast pictures work well. great for podcasts this, hold on the picture here's the picture move, I'm going to set this up for you because you're talking I need to move my beer hold you're on. talking about Rex at the Indy 500 so in 1931 Wilbur Shaw the subject of a lot of our discussion today Wilbur Shaw was driving a uh, giant, no, no. He was driving like a he was driving a giant Duesenberg. That's right. This was a, one of the Duesenbergs. Okay, these are giant cars. I want you to take a look at this picture. He is the car that is not on the track. <laughs> this picture is of a car going over the wall in turn two, I believe. He flies out of the track, got his legs all banged up. He got some scrapes and scratches all over his body and was pretty beat up but was okay enough in this race 
there were two Duesenberg specials. He was driving the number 32 car. There was like a number 31 or 33 Duesenberg special. Anyway. So team orders. He gets back into the pits <laughs> after they check him out at the hospital. And he's sitting in the pits just watching the rest of the race because that's what you did. Yeah. And the team owner's like, hey, because this happened all the time back then. Oh, yeah. Hey, our guy's getting tired. Can you come in and oh, yeah. are you feeling good enough to get in the car? And he's like, sure. So there's a great story where he said he's driving past one of the other guys that's in the race that he, you know, obviously saw him wreck. And he said this guy just looked over his shoulder and then like panicked and looked again. And he talks to him after the race and said, hey, what was all that about? And he goes, Wilbur, were you in the number 32 car that went over the wall? And he goes, yes. And he goes, were you in the number 33 car that passed me a little bit later in the race? And he goes, also, yes. And he's like, I swear to God on the racetrack, I thought I was seeing a ghost. I thought I had died. And so I was panicking. He said the guy took like five laps to get his head back in it because he's like, Wilbur Shaw is driving a Duesenberg. I just saw Wilbur Shaw fly out of here. And of course, there's no radio where you can be like, hey, what the hell is Wilbur Shaw doing back yeah. on the track? You know, he just looks over and sees a guy he thought died driving on the track with him. How trippy would that be? This is, I'm just telling you, this era of driving in Indianapolis, insane. There needs to be like a, like a, like a last kingdom game of thrones it's uh, these are all weird analogies but there needs to be like some dramatic netflix series done about 1930s 1940s 1950s see i like that track that's where your brain goes because my brain goes there needs to be like a goofy campy like here's this doofy guy who just happens to be racing alongside of all these really good drivers it needs to be fiction based in reality like come up with a fictional name, come up with a fictional driver, put some stories on that, and then have that guy in a race where he sees like Wilbur Shaw and he sees Man. some of these other, you know, uh, great drivers of that era. And Where's Jim Neighbors when you need him? <laughs> Gomer just... Pyle is what you're saying. <laughs> you're, stuck on, <laughs> you're stuck on Jim Neighbors. Uh, we are going to take a break. But here's the cool thing. Two of the cars that Wilbur, well, two of the races that he won, two of the Indy 500s that he won, he won in a Boyle Racing Maserati. That car is on display at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. You can see it right now. The other thing, though, is the shop where they built those cars and worked on them, that shop has been saved, much like Wilbur Shaw saved the Speedway. We are going to talk to one of the people who helped save that shop and preserve some Indianapolis racing history and... You can drink a beer named after Wilbur Shaw at that brewery. We're going to talk to one of the founders of Gugman House Brewing. We're going to talk to Courtney Guggenberger next, right here on Stacker. We're less than two miles from the speedway. Indianapolis has so much to offer. It is just a beautiful city with a lot of amazing things going on. That's Courtney Guggenberger. She's one of the co-founders of Guggman House Brewing Company, and she's telling me about her brewery, which happens to have a big tie-in with our story today about Wilbur Shaw. It kind of started back around 2012. So my husband and I, he's our head brewer now. We lived in Germany for a year with his job, and over there we fell in love with the community around beer and kind of what it meant to the core of the culture over there, really. Um, and we started going around to different breweries, trying different beers. But over there, obviously, there's a main focus on Hayfoot, Pilsner, 
And when we moved back from there, we started homebrewing here in Broad Ripple in Indianapolis. And then around the same time, my twin sister and her husband lived in Denver. And so out there, they would go hiking in the afternoon and then come back in for for a beer at the local brewery. And out, out in Denver, the craft beer scene is just is amazing, really. So they fell in love with it out there, too. We ended up living two streets apart. Being twins, we've really done everything together our whole lives, aside from those big experiences. We started a homebrew system in their basement. We had 10 taps coming out of the walls. We had a one-barrel professional system in their basement. And we decided that, you know, we could really try to make something out of it. Um, And we eventually wanted to work for ourselves. And the craft beer industry in general and owning a brewery, to us, it represented more than just beer and brewing beer. It was the whole community aspect as well. Courtney's story is very interesting. This brewery reminded me a lot of the way race car drivers get started often, or at least they did back when Wilbur Shaw was driving. They see something cool. They want to get involved. They get their hands dirty and learn how to do it. That's what Wilbur Shaw did. And that's what this family did. It's kind of cool. But even though Courtney, her sister and their husbands would end up being a big part of saving the legacy of Wilbur Shaw and Boyle Racing, they didn't know a ton about it when they first started on this journey. I had always appreciated the race um, and what it's done for the city of Indianapolis. I didn't grow up going every year. So we hadn't heard of Wilbur Shaw. But when we did live in Germany, that is how people knew when we said we were from Indiana. They're like, oh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We're like, yes, <laughs> that's there. Um, <laughs> they didn't bring up Peyton yeah. Manning, huh? In Germany. <laughs> no, 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 no. They don't necessarily follow American football. But um, right. when it came to that kind of being the iconic trademark um, of the of the state, that's what they knew. So we um, had started looking for a location back in 2015 through a meeting that happened at the time. We heard of a group of racing, historic racing enthusiasts that were trying to save a building from complete city demo. The Boyle Racing Headquarters Foundation is a group of racing fans and historians who are attempting to preserve some history of the Speedway, namely the headquarters of Mike Boyle's race team. Umbrella Mike, as he was known back in the day, he's one of the legendary figures in Indianapolis lore, and at some point, we'll probably have to do an entire podcast just about him. The Maseratis that Wilbur Shaw drove to victory in 1939 and 1940, those were Boyle Maseratis, as in Boyle Racing. And this shop is where they were maintained. But as Courtney told me, this building was in no shape to stand on its own. It barely had two walls up and was about to be demoed by the city. They needed a business to step in to be a part of a rebuilding project. And Gugman House Brewing was more than happy to oblige. The first step was to get them to to not demolish the building, which a lot of it did have to come down. But so they formed a foundation, the Boyle Racing Foundation. And they partnered with Indiana Landmarks, who helped save historic sites. And that basically got it off of the city demo list. And so then they were able to take possession of it. And that's when kind of the plan for the building started to take shape after that. And they had thought that maybe having a brewery as the anchor, they needed an anchor to go into the spot to help revitalize and bring the legacy of the Boyle Racing Team back to life. So they needed an anchor business. And then the other mission of bringing the legacy of Boyle Racing, of Wilbur Shaw, back to life as well. And so... That's kind of how we ended up in this in this spot right here. The property is pretty interesting. In addition to the Boyle Racing Team headquarters, there's also a house on the property, which is currently serving as the tap room and actual brewery for Goodman House. They're brewing out of the basement. You can see pictures of this whole place on our Instagram at Stagger Podcast. Outside, there's a beer garden. 
which connects to the new structure, the new old structure that's being fixed up. That should be ready in the middle of the summer of 2021. So what's going to go in the Boyle Racing headquarters where Wilbur Shaw's Maserati once sat? Well, apparently a lot of history and a lot of beer. So that will have our larger brew house. It will have a kitchen. Um, it'll have a, a bigger tap room where we can actually seat people inside. And it'll have a dedicated garage space for the Boyle Racing memorabilia. That last little bit of space where the memorabilia will go is being taken over by the Boyle Racing Foundation. They're going to have some really cool stuff in there if you're a racing geek like us. I know they're collecting a lot of things from the era of what would have been in this building, um, along with just throughout the years, they've, they know how to find, <laughs> find unique things, I guess. They also found the race car hauler for Wilbur Shaw's Maserati. And I can't do the whole story justice because I was not there, but they found the shell of the race. It's a diamond T. I forget what year. Um, they found the shell of it in a ravine in Northern Indiana and they have built it back to life. Um, and so that will be housed in this garage, which will be amazing. It's a beautiful, restored, maroon um, boil race car hauler. So that would be like the the main thing in there. Aside from from the stuff that they'll be bringing in, we did save a lot of the beams. And so we've used one right now as the fireplace mantle, and we're trying to find new homes for the different beams and stuff that were actually in the garage, along with the extra brick. We've used some of the extra brick to rebuild other parts of walls within the building, but we've also used it to build our bars so that we could tie it in um, in that way as well. So you can look at some racing history and, oh yeah, they have tons of beer, including beers named after all these legends we've been talking about. You know, you can drink a Wilbur Surprise Pils. We've named our Pilsner after Wilbur Shaw. It uses traditional German uh, malt and then we use American hops. So it's a little bit bright, a little bit fruity. It's lower ABV, around 4.9%. So it's kind of just a good refreshing beer to have on a warm day or not warm day, but <laughs> it's kind yeah. of a go-to one of our house beers that's on all the time. A lot, And then we have our winner's milk jug stout, which is our milk stout um, named for the tradition of chugging milk at the end of the race. And then we have a boiled brown, which is one of our core beers, but it's on more seasonally. Um, and that's just named for the boil race team in general. It's been pretty spectacular just getting to learn the history and trying to do it justice with how we're going to help bring it back to life. Um, even the touch of, you know, naming the beer for Wilbur Shaw has just been a, a cool thing. We got to know Wilbur's son um, who lives here in Indianapolis and um, it's been pretty special to get to be a piece, to be a little piece of that, of that history. For more information, you can find Goodman House Brewing online, goodmanhousebrewing.com. Of course, we'll have the link for you as well. On our Twitter and Instagram pages, those are both at Stagger Podcast. And if you're in Indianapolis, stop by the Speedway Museum, take a look at Wilbur Shaw's Maserati, and then head over to Goodman House Brewing and toast a Wilbur Pills, assuming you're of age. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks again for listening to Stagger.